What's going on, Renaissance family? This is your boy, Jordan. Grateful everybody's tuning in with us for our online service. Before we get started in today's message, as always, I want to start us off with a word of prayer. So Heavenly Father, uh, wherever uh, your people are listening, watching um, this message, I pray that it would just do something to our hearts, that it would uh, not just stay in our heads, but that it would be something that really is transformational for us in understanding you and your purpose in our life. So I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the reality is I really, really miss y'all so much. I miss seeing people. I'm an extrovert on steroids, and online church certainly has a number of drawbacks. But one of the real pros of, of meeting online is that I can say what I'm about to say right now. So normally we have an auditorium full of people, and if you didn't catch last week's message, I try to do a like five-minute recap of the last message so that we're all on the same page. Last week, for me personally, was so like groundbreaking um, in the way I understand God, the way I understand Exodus, and certainly it's like way too much for me to try to recap. So I want you to consider today as episode two in your favorite Netflix series. Uh, maybe it's not your favorite series, but a series that you're watching and that you're not gonna understand episode two without first watching episode one. So if you have not listened to or watched last week's message called Sticking Points, How Could God Do This? I want you to hit pause and I want you to go to our YouTube channel or our website and I want you to find that message and watch that one first because a lot of today is not gonna really hit the way I want it to hit unless you first watch that. It's called Sticking Points, How Could God Do This? And it really is the prequel in episode one to our episode two today. So if you haven't wa watched that or listened to that, please go and, and watch that now. For the rest of you, uh, so glad that y'all are rocking with us and journeying with us along this Exodus series. And I, I will do a brief recap of last week's message, just in case you've forgotten some of the points. The funny thing is, uh, I forget most of my sermon like 10 seconds after I'm done preaching it. So I know most of you have forgotten like 95% of it. But last week we covered a couple of different points as we looked at this part of scripture called the Passover in Exodus. And uh, when we talked about the Passover and God freeing his people uh, from Egypt, it was this final and dramatic plague of striking the firstborn son. And what we noticed was that God was not acting arbitrarily or too harsh, but rather that God was freeing his people from really a system, a corrupt system of injustice and oppression that needed to be eradicated. So last week we talked about that God was a God of justice, and that's actually what we want. None of us wants a God that would ignore evil or injustices in the world. Number two, we misunderstand that like the really structural and systemic nature of sin and evil and oppression. And so when God was killing that firstborn son, he was undoing a centuries-long system. Number three, we, we truly do read sometimes the stories of the Old Testament from the wrong perspective. And if you look at the Exodus story and the story of the Passover, it's not, about, it's not meant to be read from the side of the Egyptians and what happened to them, but rather the side of God's people. And that in all reality, it is a love story. It's not a story of violence, but it's rather a story of love that God, our God does not love violence, but he does love his people and he will stop at nothing to free his people from bondage, sin, and oppression. And here's where we're going to go today, which is point four, that the story of the Passover and the Exodus is incomplete. Now, there's a scripture 
a number of scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus talks about scriptures like this in the Old Testament. And Jesus like straight up says that these stories in and of themselves are incomplete, that they point to a greater reality in him. In John 5, Jesus says this word, these words, he's talking to some religious leaders and he says, you pour over the scriptures like the one we read, we read in Exodus because you think in them you have eternal life and yet they testify about me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So what Jesus is saying in John 5 and a number of other places in the New Testament is that Moses and the biblical authors were writing about him, that these stories were actually pointing towards him. Now, what was the Passover? The Passover was first 430 years of oppression that preceded it. And God's people were under the power of the Egyptians for over 400 years. And the power that they were under was greater than they could do and deliver themselves from. This wasn't about choice. This wasn't about strength. This wasn't about tenacity. This was about being subject to something that was bigger and badder than you were, that you could never free yourselves from. So first you see that God's people are in, are, are in Egypt, subjected to a power that's greater than them. Secondly, you see that God brings these plagues of judgment and the final and the last plague being that of the death of the firstborn son. And God promised his people that they would be passed over, that they would escape the judgment that was coming on, again, this power of sin that was operating if they killed a lamb and put its blood on their doorposts. Now, if I were to stop right there, a lot of people would leave today feeling very unsatisfied, like, man, what does this mean for me? Um, what does this relate to, like, how does this relate to my spiritual life? How am I supposed to worship this God? What is this, how is this going to like stir my affection and make me feel more devoted to, to Jesus? Like, how does this, how does this actually work? Now, Jesus says this is about him, this entire story, although it's a little bit confusing from the outset. And when New Testament writers wrote about Jesus, they talked about him being our Passover lamb. John the Baptist, uh, which was called John the Baptist, not because he wasn't John the Methodist or John the Catholic, but rather his ministry was baptizing people. As a matter of fact, he baptized Jesus. And before he baptized Jesus, he says this in John 1 and 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, Jesus, and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're going to spend our time today unpacking what does it mean that Jesus is our Lamb. For those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, we're going to explore the depth of the realities of what that means for those of you who are new, I hope today is a window into what biblical Christianity is all about and to the point that you would be able to refute what it is, what it is not about. Now, the, the book of Exodus and this story of the Passover teaches us something about the gospel. Now, you might have heard the, the term gospel referred to in a lot of different ways. And by the gospel, I'm not just talking about a genre of music. I'm talking about the message, the announcement of what God has done on our behalf, which is the basis of what Christianity is all about. And here's what one of my favorite authors and mentors, Tim Keller, says about the gospel. This is what it is. And this is what we're going to see in the story of the Passover. And it starts off a little bit uh, challenging. It says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves 
than we would ever dare to believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Now, one of the challenges of modern American Christianity is that people tend to live on extremes. So on one extreme, there are people who live this self-loathing version of Christianity where they end up like hating themselves as miserable, vile sinners, and that's all they talk about. And on the other extreme, a group of people who never discuss the value of what it means to have a lamb slain in our place because they discount their sin altogether. And by discounting our sin, and we'll get to that word because I know it's offensive and, and difficult for some people to understand. By discounting that, we actually discount the, the beauty of what uh, Jesus has come to do in our lives and the depth of his love for us. So on one end, we are more sinful than we ever dare to admit. But on the other end, simultaneously, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we could ever hope or imagine. So there's a few points I want to tackle today. Um, and here's one. Here's the first one. If the story of Exodus is about Jesus being our lamb, then that must mean that you and I are subjected to a power of sin that we can't free ourselves from. Sin itself operates like an oppressive system that we are under. And what Egypt represents in Exodus is an oppressive force in our lives. Now, not that we are physically enslaved, but rather what Jesus is saying is that this story points to the spiritual nature of our lives with God. Now, New York City has amazing restaurants and amazing culture and art. And one of the best things about New York City are some amazing churches. And one of my boys, Rich Velotis at New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, he says it like this about the power of sin in our lives. He says this, sin is not just something we do, but a power humanity is under. We can't educate ourselves out of its grip. We don't over overcome it through progressive achievements, nor by moral consistency. The antidote for sin is found in a power outside of ourselves, the cross of Christ. Now, here's what Jesus is in, in New Testament writers and scriptural writers are getting at when they call Jesus the Lamb of God. They're saying that Jesus is the one that is going to free us from the oppressive system that you and I could never free ourselves from. The problem with that statement is a lot of times we think very individualistically about corporate and structural problems. So to even say that we can't free ourselves from the power of sin offends us and challenges us on a number of reasons. One, I think it challenges us because we don't look critically enough at our lives and to see the effect of, of sin. My boy Paul says it like this in Romans 7. He says, then he's talking about the power of sin in his life. He says, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but rather I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Later on in Romans 7, Paul says, like, what is it? But rather it's the power, it's the sin that's living in me. Whether or not you want to admit it, whether or not you want to accept it, there is a power of sin in our lives that stops us from doing the good that we want to do, that allows us to do the bad that we don't want to do, that robs us of our consistency. To all my Christians who started January 1 saying, I'm going to read the Bible every single day, and you made it to January 6th, what is it? It's this power of sin in our life that keeps us from hitting the mark. Now, 
We're going to get to some good news in a second, but I don't want us to to slap individual remedies on a corporal, corporate and structural problem. We see the firsthand effects of that in government and in life. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I watched the documentary on Netflix called Crack, and it was taking me back to the 80s and the 90s with the crack epidemic. And it was really, really wild. And there was so much in that, in that uh, documentary that I didn't know or remember. The only thing I really remembered from the 80s were those commercials where they would take an egg and put it in a, in a super hot scalding skillet and say, this is your brain on drugs. And we'd watch that and be terrified. So, of course, we didn't want to uh, use any drugs. And the antidote that the American government came up with was just say no. So you have a force, a power that is infecting communities, uh, robbing families. It is just horrendous. And their antidote is personal. Just say no. Even more of a challenge and more hypocrisy was the war on drugs that they had. And they were going to get tough on crime. And they were arresting drug dealers with small amounts. They changed the way cocaine and crack was classified. They were arresting drug users and throwing them in prison for years. And what was happening every single time they took another pusher off the street, it all it did was create a vacuum that another person would step into. And the problem for decades was going on, even with harsher and harsher sentences. Why? Because they were trying to deal with a a systemic and structural issue with individual decisions. Now, the, the hypocrisy behind it all was that the U.S. government, in some cases, was aware of kilos and kilos of cocaine coming into the country and tons and tons of all these drugs are coming in and being poured into neighborhoods. And they're trying to address systemic issues at the top with individual choice issues at the bottom. And that just doesn't work. And I hope what this makes us realize about our highly individualized approach towards life is that in the same way that the war on drugs would have never and still has never been solved by just telling people to make better decisions, that you cannot solve systemic and structural issues on an individual basis. In the same way, when scripture tells us that we are under a power of sin, that means that the, you having more willpower or serving at a soup kitchen or whatever it is that you, you, you want to do, in and of itself, you could never free yourself from the power of sin. The freedom for that is found outside of our, ourselves in the cross of Christ. Now, this is meant to strip us lovingly of any semblance of self-righteousness that we might have in our heart, which, which says to ourselves that we're good on our own or we can do it on our own. This is something that God wants us to reject outright. Now, as a dad, um, my oldest son now is, is getting up there. He's, he's in kindergarten and he is uh, at every opportunity he can get wanting to be a big boy and to be free. But the problem is his desire for freedom. He doesn't realize things that he's like not able to do. So sometimes we'll get in our building and he'll say, Dad, you take the elevator. I'll walk up the stairs and meet you in front of our door. Or other times he tries to do things that are like way too big for him. Like I'm just going to cross the street by myself. I know how to do it. I'm like, bro, trust me, you are like years away from being able to cross the street on your own. You don't even understand the concept of looking both ways. And I do not want him feeling self-righteous in those moments because his, his self-righteousness will lead to his harm. And it is a love of a father that wants to protect his children from self-righteousness. We see the same thing for God in Exodus 12 and 22. 
Well, God is talking to his people and he says this, after you put the blood on your door, not one of you shall go out of your house until the morning. As I was thinking about this, I was like, God, why is it that even though you said you were bringing judgment on the Egyptians, your own people couldn't leave the house? And I, a couple of different theologians have given me a lot of great things to think about with this. What God was telling his people was this, that the judgment of sin was not just coming on the Egyptians. The destroyer that God was sending was no respecter of persons. In essence, God was telling his people in yourselves, if you were to meet judgment tonight on your own basis, you would not be able to stand in yourself. You are no better than the Egyptians. Now, another concept in, in this scripture that is challenging for, for a lot of people is this concept of judgment. And we think to ourselves, how could a good and loving God bring judgment on people? And man, that's a, a very fair question to ask. But I think we struggle with it because we're not paying as much attention and thinking as critically even about the way our own lives work. So think about it like this. There is something in the book of Romans, like Romans 1, it talks about a concept of general revelation. General revelation basically means that there are some things that we can just like all observe that God teaches us, not necessarily through a, a scripture, but rather sometimes God teaches us things through the general nature of the way our world works. One of those things that we learn generally in life is that sin never leaves us in a neutral place like behind the pathway of sin, there is always a wake of death. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, when Paul says a law of sin and death, he's not talking about laws like those written by the government, but laws like gravity. Right. So like, you don't have to believe in gravity for gravity to be it like is what it is. And here's the law of sin and death. And here's why the concept of God judging uh, sin is, is not offensive, because whenever you sin, something dies. That following sin in every single case, there's always something that dies as a result of it. And whether it's God's judgment or just the natural unfolding of what happens, the effect of sin, sin never leaves us neutral, That's, that death is sure to follow. I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen this in so many different relationships with, with different couples and different people, that whenever there's like real dishonesty in a relationship, like what happens as a result of their sin? A piece of the intimacy, a piece of the connection, like the laughter, it just, it just dies. Now, in God's grace, there are so many relationships that are able to come back from it, but make no mistake about it, when that thing happened, when that sin happened, a piece of their connection and their life together died. I've seen this in my own children, where I've seen a little bit of my, my kid's innocence die right in front of me. I was at the playground with my kid, and he went to a group of kids and said, do you want to play with me? And they were like, no. Just like, kids are rude, man. And I, I wanted to fight a five-year-old. I was almost, I was thinking like, how can I? No, I wasn't trying to fight a five-year-old, but I was like sad for real to watch his face like just droop down and a little innocence left him. And he was just like sad for the rest of the day. I was like, come on, man, we don't need these little raggedy uh, snot-nosed kids anyway. And um, what happens? A little bit of his innocence died because of harsh treatment by some little tyrants um, to him. 
that wherever there's sin, there's always death to follow in relationships with each other and certainly in our relationship with God. Now, the good news of the gospel doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us in their sin and death, but rather, as Paul talks about, there is a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has set us free from the law of sin and death. And to avoid the death that we see in scripture, we are told that we need a sacrifice in our place. Now, a lot of times people struggle with this concept of sacrifice and the meaning of what it means for Jesus to forgive us because we kind of just believe that God could just forgive people without it coming at a cost to himself or to others. And I think it's because we misunderstand forgiveness. And this is probably why our culture does such a bad job at it. Forgiveness is, is never free. Forgiveness always comes at a cost to the person giving and granting the forgiveness. If I give you $20 and I forgive you of it, the $20 doesn't magically reappear in my account. I have to eat that myself. And what we're told in scripture is that the forgiveness that we need is costly, but it doesn't have to come from our bank account, but rather from God, who is our sacrificial lamb. Now, in the Bible, this concept of a lamb, although we see it here and it it is a little strange to some people, it's a beautiful concept. Essentially, what God is telling us here through this passage and so many other passages is that there is a lamb that will take away our sin. And in later passages in the Old Testament, they would take this lamb and they would send him out into the wilderness, never to be seen again, representing that the sins of the people that were placed on the lamb, the lamb would carry them away. And the lamb would take the brunt of the judgment of the dislocation of sin, of all of the negative effects of sin, and take it away, never to be felt by God's people. Now, I've struggled with this concept emotionally, even though I know these languages, these words theologically, like how could Jesus take my place? Well, I was reading a story a number of years ago uh, about a woman named Cecilia. She was all grown up now, but tells the story of uh, the day that her life changed. It was August 16th, 1987, and uh, she was on Northwest Airlines Flight 225. And that flight was on its way to crash just minutes from taking off from Detroit airport, killing 155 out of 156 people. She was the lone survivor. As the story unfolds, Cecilia was on the plane seated next to her mother, Paula Chican. And as the plane was descending rapidly, her mother unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and her body around Cecilia and would not let her go. And when that plane crashed, not the the force of the crash, not the flames that would follow, nothing would separate her from her daughter. And by her mother absorbing the full weight of the crash, Cecilia lived. Now, what is the gospel story? Yes, it's that we're more sinful than we ever want to think about, but it's also that simultaneously, We are more loved than we could ever imagine that our Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity, unbuckled himself from eternity, got down on the cross and wrapped his arms around us so much so that Paul says neither height nor depth, nor life nor death, nothing in all of creation could separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. Such is the love of our Savior for us. He left heaven, lowered himself for us and covered us with the sacrifice of his own body to save us. Now, when it calls Jesus our sacrificial lamb, this is what it truly and fully means. Now, the effect 
of everyone who has placed their faith in Christ should be joy, should be freedom. It should be radically receiving the love of God for us poured out in Jesus Christ and living as forgiven people. Now, I've been a pastor for about a decade now in different uh, capacities, and one of the biggest challenges I've had personally, and so many people have, is the reality of what does it mean to live as a forgiven person? So let's back up to my man, John. John says, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin from the world. What does it mean to live as a person who has had all of their sins taken away by Jesus, our sacrificial Lamb? My man Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1. He says, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Now, the concept of forgiveness, as Paul is getting to Jesus, our lamb, it's not detached. It's not just something spilled out into a vacuum that our forgiveness was purchased through a person. That person is Jesus. But a couple of things about forgiveness, if we're going to live in light of what John is promising us, that Jesus has taken away our sin from, from us, we have to realize that forgiveness is a spiritual reality, not just something that is meant to be judged by our feelings. In other words, you can be forgiven and not feel forgiven. What do we see here in this text and so many others? They are pronouncements of God's forgiveness of us. That John is telling his people, look, and he's getting hyped, like, look, this is a Lamb of God that takes away the sin from the world. And for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, this is precisely what God has done for us. Christ has carried away our sins like the sacrificial lamb. They are never to be seen again. One of the things that I still think about sometimes is one of the worst financial decisions I've ever made, mainly because I was trying to be like one of my friends, my boy named Chill Will. Chill Will, if you're watching, this is all your fault. But my boy bought an apartment like in 07. And uh, man, I was like, man, I got to I got to do something with my life. So I went, I was looking for apartments and I bought an apartment in 08, like right before the collapse, the financial collapse. And basically I paid more for the apartment than it was worth. And for years and years, I struggled with trying to get it rented out and different things. And I hit a point a couple of years ago where I was paying my rent and paying for an empty apartment that was doing absolutely nothing in Westchester. And every single month, it was like the biggest drain of energy and finances, it was a nightmare until that one beautiful day when I was sitting at the closing table, uh, signing papers and someone bought the apartment and I was free and clear from that mortgage, never to have to pay for it ever again. I'll never forget a couple of weeks later, I woke up and it was the first of the month and like my heart was pounding and I was still nervous thinking about how we're going to pay for our rent and this mortgage that I had been carrying. And I was like, oh, that's that's done. That's been paid for already. Even though I didn't feel like it was over, it was over. I think one thing that we need to do is to, if we're going to grow and be mature in our faith, we need to accept realities over our feelings. And the spiritual realities of what God is telling us in Scripture are bigger and should triumph over our feelings about a given situation. You don't have to feel forgiven to be forgiven. And that's part of the beauty of, uh, of the gospel so much so, Paul gives us a challenge in Romans 12. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but rather 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So even though we don't have to feel forgiven to to be forgiven, I still think that we need to make sure that we are putting into practice mind-renewing practices that will allow our feelings to eventually catch up to the realities that we have in, in Christ. Now, here's the other part about forgiveness. And for me, my challenge on living in forgiveness is that I know I wouldn't forgive people. Or let me just say for me, I wouldn't forgive me like God does. Like I wouldn't do that. I would still hold a little bit for that argument that's going to happen like six months later. Like I have a problem where I just don't feel like I have it within myself to be as forgiving as God is. And as a result, I struggle to live in the freedom of what John is talking about, of what this Passover points to, because I'm still rehearsing what I've done in my mind, thinking that God is not able to truly, fully forgive. And here's the beauty of what Paul says in Ephesians. He talks about God being rich in grace. Here's the thing about rich people. Rich people could do stuff that normal people can't do. Like the way a rich person could spend money, like you, you can't do that. You just can't spend money the way somebody else like really, really balling out could do. And scripture here in verse seven says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with what? In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, at my last church, there was a couple there that was like legitimately like richer than they ever thought was humanly possible. The guy invented something that allowed people to make trades milliseconds faster and almost overnight found himself with millions and millions of dollars uh, that he just couldn't even keep up with. They were balling out so much that they had an apartment on the Upper West Side overlooking Central Park that they outbid Matt Damon for. The rent in that joint was 27 stacks a month for rent. Uh, They invited us over one night for a catered event. And I mean, you walk in the building and it's just like there's just you just go straight up to the apartment, hit the elevator button. And it's this huge, massive apartment with a wraparound terrace, views of Central Park, vibes galore. And they got a private catered chef who's making any and everything you could ever imagine stuff for days laid out there. And they invited the wrong one they, when they brought your boy out. Cause I was like, yo, I'm going to have a very good time tonight. And the main reason was this, like, they're not going to feel it. Like in many ways I would have been insulting them if I was like, you know what? I, yeah. I know y'all are offering me these like 30 day dry age steaks prepared by your private chef, but now nah, I'm good. I'm just going to eat some Cheez-Its although those are delicious uh, in the corner because I I don't want to take advantage of you. They would have looked at me like I was crazy and in some ways insulting their wealth. What is a dry age steak to someone who's paying $27,000 a month in rent for their apartment? Like they're not going to feel it, bro. Eat up. Do what you do. I think in many ways we disrespect the richness of God's grace when when we try to cling to our sins that God and, and cling to the belief that God couldn't forgive us as he tells us he does in scripture because we couldn't see ourselves doing what God is doing. When God says through scripture that he is rich in grace, he's reminding us that he can do things in his richness. He can lavish us with grace, as Paul says, in ways that we could never imagine, not because of us, but rather because of him. He is rich 
and grace, and that is good news. Now, one of the ways that we let this good news sink into the reality of our hearts is through a practice called communion. And for the last 2,000 years, men and women have been rehearsing Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection as a means of reminding themselves and remembering God's rich grace poured out for us when God sent his lamb, his son, Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, to die on our behalf. And right now, for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, we're going to spend some time taking communion. For those of you who don't know where you stand in your relationship with God, uh, man, I would love it if we can connect with you and talk with you about what it means for you to place your faith in Christ. Uh, you can text Harlem to 94000 and we'll connect you with the pastor or someone to talk to. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to move to communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you for an opportunity to break open your word. And I pray that it leads us to, to worship. I pray that it leads us to gratitude, to, the, to appreciation, and most importantly, to freedom. As we look at you, our lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.